When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture this week is Tim Evans. Tim is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, we're going to try and tackle three topics as, as ever. What to begin with? We're going to begin with an article that appeared recently in The Atlantic. Uh, which is a very influential um, publication uh, in North America. Um, It's quite a cerebral piece. It's Mm. it's rather like Prospect magazine over here. It's quite a highbrow piece. Yes. Really, really good article on on, uh, concerns around um, uh, California, because California seems to be suffering with really poor housing, really poor education, um, you know, we saw some riots in the early 90s, mid 90s, and we've seen problems in recent years. And this is extraordinary, given that, of course, California was, uh, certainly when I was uh, a little boy, it was almost a, a beacon mm. of prosperity and of, of the future. You know, it, I mean, this is the home of, um, of things like Hollywood. And this is the home of, of even now things like Netflix originals and mm. wonderful tech companies, you know, um, Instagram or Google, iPhones, all this stuff, you know, um, is is from Silicon Valley. And you think of, you know, very smart, um, uh, you know, colleges like Berkeley College, Berkeley College. Um, so, you know, what is going in California? Well, of course, the story is that really the modern California really took off in the 1850s when gold was discovered, mm. a huge gold rush. In many ways, uh, the wonderful city, San Francisco, somewhere I, I honeymooned, honeymooned there uh, 20 years ago, um, took off and California became a great city. Um, there was huge growth. Uh, when California joined the Union in 1850, it was one of those states that absolutely shunned uh, sort of the Southern tradition of slavery. Um, it became a very, very successful melting pot by, you know, the 1860s, one in every 10 people uh, were from a Chinese background. The Irish became hugely influential, and this was a huge melting pot. And really by the 1920s, it was um, not only a very beautiful place, but it was very dynamic. It became a beacon of growth. Um, and almost it heralded a world that we talk about today, a world of inclusion and diversity. Um, black people there were usually in good housing. Um, education was good. Um, and, and really, it was something to behold. But as I say, things have gone wrong. And this article in The Atlantic tells a story of great woes in recent decades where basically, um, uh, whether it's regulation in housing or even in the way that 
chemist shops are run or farms are run, that this has become very much a highly regulated state and a state that has suffered all kinds of regulatory capture or capture by producers. There's been lots of very, for example, powerful white middle class people who have become activists and and used uh, their own minority interests using pulling their own levers of democracy um, to create barriers of entry to other people and really to create their own uh, oases of 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 sort of introspection and and distance from from the mainstream this has also affected things like energy supply in california been all kinds of blackouts in recent years but it's a real warning from when what was once a dream and and was so emblematic of what the future could be and and all the good things cultural liberalism inclusion diversity as well as all the economic dynamism my my it's gone so wrong so it's an upsetting read is and why has it gone like that? I mean, I have I have a friend who's of a libertarian bent, an American who lived in San Francisco, a bit of an Anglophile. I mean, came over coincidentally at the time of the financial crisis or 2007, 2008. But I mean, she already even then was hating the way that San Francisco was going. I think rent controls, all manner of things that she felt really were going to doom the city ultimately and got out while she could and not regretted it. Yeah, I, I think the first thing is, uh, I mean, when California really, you know, uh, took off in the 1850s, the 1860s, you've got to remember, this was before the Transcontinental Railway. It was before hmm. things like the Panama Canal. And California was more connected to the economy of the Pacific Rim and, in a way, the Far East than, than I think we often realise. You know, New York, Boston, all those places in the East were a long, long way away, and 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 they were disconnected in a sense. So, mm-hmm. part of this dream, I think, has been gnawed away at, at the rise, quite frankly, of great powerhouses of the Far East. You know, that have eaten market share, that have got into manufacturing. The obvious ones are Taiwan, South Korea, Japan. There's something in all that. So that's sort of an external reason. They're living in a very competitive part of the world. But also there are these internal concerns where for all the great things and the things that California's got right, you know, the diversity issues, the inclusion, the avoidance of, 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 of quite frankly, policies steeped in Southern racism, you know, all those things. Um, the people who have made the money, the people who have done well on the back of, if you will, uh, for the sake of communication, the capitalist dream, um, they have nevertheless, they've sabotaged um, modern Californian democracy. And what they've done is um, they've used very articulate, very powerful minority voices. This is sort of wealthy white people. And they've often um, used legislative um, uh, capture um, to um, unfairly uh, enrich themselves and to exclude other people. And so California, in a way, uh, modern California, is no longer uh, rooted in, in, in those joint principles of cultural liberalism and inclusion and that economic dynamism. And of course, once you lose the economic dynamism and you lose the inclusion, the whole thing balkanizes and yes. falls apart. Um, and, and this really matters, Simon. And the reason it really matters, and it matters for us here in Britain and in Europe and for the rest of the world, is it, first of all, it raises the question, uh, are other parts of the so-called advanced world going to 
fall in this in this way, something to watch out for. But secondly, remember, this is the world's fifth biggest economy. California is a colossus. You know, if California were a country on its own, it's absolutely up there with, um, you know, with Japan, with yes. Britain, with France, with, Germany, with the other, you know, with, with modern China, the other great economic powerhouses. Well, this is the bizarre thing, isn't it? I mean, it's home of Silicon Valley, some of the most financially successful companies in the entire world. Exactly. So if, if the dream dies, now look, I'm an optimist and I think that lots of the nimbyism that's gone on, lots of the um, damaging and often counterproductive um, economic interventionism that's gone on in recent decades and, and you know, Although it's a very liberal state and, and the Democrats have held sway there for a long time, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm in no way letting Republicans off mm. the book here. I think California really needs a wake up call and they need to reassess, reflect on what made them great and what set them on the right trajectory and what has led, you know, to many of these ongoing success stories, right? Mm. Silicon Valley and some, you know, all the good stuff. But where it's going wrong, particularly in housing, in farming, in energy, in education, they've got to really think hard. And and if they need a bit more dynamism injected, a little bit more competition, for example, if they need more charter schools or free schools, all kinds of things, well, you know, bring it on. Um, um, if regulation, um, for example, zoning laws has mm. been playing into the hands of of the already rich and powerful um, uh, to the exclusion of of people who want to get on the ladder of the dream. Yes, there's a great deal of resentment, I believe, amongst exactly. people who are not part of Silicon Valley about the way, and apart from anything else, the, the price of housing has just gone beyond their reach. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, so, so this requires an assessment and perhaps some, you know, supply-side reforms. Um, mm. I don't think that, quite frankly, you know, rich, powerful people should be allowed uh, to stop the development of, of new housing, particularly sustainable forms mm. of housing, um, if, you know, just by using legislative control and favour and kind of crowding people out. I think that's unfair. And that's not what really California should be about. California should be about, well, if you can build, you know, green and sustainable, progressive homes, uh, and and uh, and do this in an efficient and effective way. Well, land should be released for it, you know, and there should be less um, domination of the planning uh, system to control to enrich those who already have. Yes, which is often yes. what happens. Um, and you know, if property prices have to go down a bit for the for the rich and powerful, because once you have greater supply, well, um, you know, hopefully prices will go down in, in certain ways and that's what markets are about well so be it but i prefer that than the sort of diversive rancor that you're seeing developing california okay that's a good moment for us to pause for breath sharing ideas about money this is share radio This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, our second topic, please. So a second topic, it has to be uh, Keir Starmer's Labour Party, because a lot uh, has gone on since we last spoke. Um, the, the first thing that's happened is that Keir Starmer is clearly uh, gaining ever tighter. <laughs> 
control, <laughs> in a way, quite frankly, just like uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn did when he was leading the Labour Party. Keir Starmer is, is getting ever greater control of the Labour Party machinery, you know, the head office, um, and 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 the rule book and and its sort of constitutional settlement, and uh, he is starting to carve out a very very different direction from from um, uh, from from Jeremy Corbyn or the hard left or the hard left domination that, that preceded him. So so the first thing I think to be to be noted is that Labour Labour's NEC and the leadership are absolutely voted to ban for formerly hard left factions, um, factions that previously supported Corbyn's leadership. And, and these are groups like Socialist Appeal um, or Reset, or um, I love it, this group, Labour Against the Witch Hunt, or, or Labour in Exile, the Labour in Exile Network. These are apparently sort of organisations that, um, that contain um, lots of uh, former Corbynistas and other people. Do not forget that there was a period under Corbyn's leadership where basically former members of the Communist Party of Great Britain and subsequently the Communist Party of Britain and Socialist Worker and uh, the Socialist Party of Great Britain and all kinds of other groups were sort of welcomed into the Labour Party and, and, and promoted by the Corbynistas. And that brought all kinds of people in with all kinds of agendas. There were some Stalinists, some Trotskyists, some syndicalists, you name it. And, and, and now Keir Starmer, I think, is trying to, and I will use the word, purge some of these groups because he wants to uh, make the Labour Party a party that, again, does not see parliamentary democracy as some sort of bourgeois affectation, but is something that the, the party is is committed to and that the party membership is committed to um and so th there's this purge is underway the other thing that he is doing is um he is uh, moving back to the blairite era and the blairite right and he's trying to count in so doing he's trying to counter this tory party of being successfully pushing through the red wall of the north so it is a, a kind of revenge if you will of the blairites and lots of keir starmer's uh, new and latest advisors um are former advisors um to tony blair or heavily associated in various ways with the new labor project so what we have in it's sort of underway now is what i would call new new labor and it'll be interesting to see where it goes um, how did blair handle the far left i can't really remember so he what he did was um uh blair effectively redrafted he edited and redrafted and got through conference um the uh, labor party clause four where he undermined labor's historic commitment to the state ownership of the means of production um, he took he basically he 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 undermined that that traditional commitment to nationalization um and 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 this sort of statist agenda that meant uh that a he went up in the opinion polls that's what happened at the time and b uh several tens of thousands of members of the hard left left the labor party and one of the people who 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 walked out um uh, who withdrew their support very publicly uh, was for example arthur scargill um been lots of revelations by the way in recent years about arthur scargill you know he he joined the stalin society 
about 20 years ago, and it turned out he had visited Russia. You can't make it up. He'd met Khrushchev. And apparently Arthur had, um, had, 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 had argued with Khrushchev uh, that Khrushchev was undermining um, Stalinism, which is a bit of an aside, but it gives you a flavour of the sort of leftists that, that left uh, the Labour Party when Blair, uh, when when Tony Blair uh, took over the uh, party. But the consequence for Tony Blair was that two or three hundred thousand new people joined the Labour Party. Uh, sort of lots of people who have been associated with the SDP, for example, joined the Labour Party. Um, uh, there were some disaffected liberals. There were some left-wing Tories. There were people who had never been involved in politics before, but were sort of, I think, excited by his commitment to the NHS and to education, but also inspired by his sort of cool Britannia agenda and of vilifying and trying to face down elements of the more insular or nativist or, or indeed racist right. So uh, I could imagine that what Starmer is trying to do is he's trying to actively shun, expel, purge and annoy the left in the hope that they will become demoralized and that many will leave. And I think he's hoping that therefore lots of sort of former members of the Labour Party people who were supporters of New Labour might rejoin. Um, you know, a public example of that uh, might be um, um, that, uh, you, know, that some, you know, I mean, there are some peers in the House of Lords who were big business people in their day, they still are, but they, 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 they left the Labour Party um, um, you know, they, they withdrew from the Labour whip. Maybe in time they will feel comfortable and will be able to go back. Um, um, you know, that's what I think he's trying to do. I think he's trying to shun the left, and I think he's trying to to bring on more moderate, more traditional, um, sort of Fabian um, uh, social democrats. And and I think in time he hopes that this will resonate with the British electorate um, and that the Labour Party will indeed become a trusted opposition and so trusted that in time they'll be mm. trusted to form a government. What's really interesting, by the way, is that as the Tories have floundered somewhat in the polls since we spoke and as Starmer has followed this path, well, Labour have started to nudge and to, to move up in the polls. So it's interesting. Um, one of the features of, of, of Corbyn becoming Labour leader was that lots of young people who perhaps hadn't been particularly interested in politics, joined uh, the Labour Party. Do we know what sort of happened to, to them? Yes, are, they more, are they more Labour or are they more Corbyn? So I think that um, lots of young people were uh, interested in Corbyn and, uh, and inspired by him. And that seemed to be going somewhere, didn't it? I mean, Corbyn became Labour leader in the autumn of 2015. Uh, huge momentum was built up. Um, he appeared at Glastonbury. Um, the publicity seemed to be good. Lots of young people uh, thought that this was all very, very shiny, very, very new. But then when Theresa May won uh, the 2017 election um, and Labour started to slip in the polls, um, that seemed to wane. And it seemed that lots of young people, most young people who seemed to sign up, um, they might have been inspired, they might have been excited, 
but it wasn't sustainable. And I think many of them have drifted off. Another thing I think that happened, and this really hasn't been mentioned publicly, but it's 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 important. Lots of those young people were very internationalist in, in their outset. And of course, the European Union was an expression of their internationalism. And I think many of these young people were well-educated, they were graduates, you know, and um, they came to realize that actually Jeremy Corbyn was indeed part of the old Benite left. Mm. And he wasn't campaigning that enthusiastically for Britain to remain in the EU. Um, and, and in fact, lots of the much, much older leadership of Momentum, I think, were in that category as well. And so a cleavage opened up between these sort of young Corbynistas who were very fervently in favour of the EU um, and the older uh, Corbynistas, the Momentum people, who were very anti it. And of course, they were anti the EU because the European Union, uh, at one level, was about building um, you know, uh, a dynamic market rooted in property rights and, and all the rest of it across Europe. Well, that's not something that, that the older hardline left-wingers were going to sign up to. They, they're not in favour of capitalism and free markets and trade and a level playing field and all the things yes. that, that the European Union talk about. Um, so that cleavage, uh, I think, meant that when um, Boris Johnson won the, the, the 20... Uh, 19 election, um, suddenly uh, the whole Corbyn project fell to pieces. And since then, it's factionalised. Um, you know, lots of people have, those that have remained, um, have done what always, it seems to me, the left do. They splinter. Some are now more attracted to Trotskyism. Mm. Some have sort of side with the older Corbyn, Corbynistas and the Benites, and others have gone their way. Many have simply pulled out. I have young friends, um, children who are the uh, youngsters who are the children of, of close friends of mine, um, who were very inspired by Corbyn. And when you talk to them now, they're not involved in any of it. They have no interest in any of it. Mm. And I think in a way they're embarrassed by it. Yes. Yes, I suppose I can understand, understand that. Well, who isn't embarrassed by some of their useful enthusiasms? In later years, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, the truth is, I mean, it's right, isn't it, that most politics at the end of the day ends in tears, and you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were you know liberals wandering around probably for twenty or thirty years saying, you know, they were devotees of Lloyd George, until it just got slightly passe and, and boring and embarrassing. You know, um, there are lots of Tories who say now they're Thatcherite. Well, fine, but. But is the agenda of Thatcher really addressing lots of the issues we're facing in the 21st century? Um, lots of people who were new Labour, you know, no doubt are slightly embarrassed by their era now. So it's a real challenge for politicians, leaderships, I think, of all parties to find a new thing, to inspire people um, uh, and, 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 and to somehow... The trick of getting elected is almost, in some instance, to get ahead of the game. Margaret Thatcher did that very successfully in 1979. She was sort of ahead of her time in a way, and then and then won the ticket to re, to create the future. Tony Blair did that. You know, he was a winning prime minister who created Call Britannia, and 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 you know, uh, and who was re-elected. Let's be honest, rather like Margaret Thatcher on three occasions, mm. um, but. The challenge for Starmer 
is how does he recreate the Labour Party machine, uh, the membership, the movement, and then later the manifesto to reflect more that is in tune with Middle England and what the electoral sphere of politics you know, requires and needs. Thank you, Tim. Time for our third topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our final topic today, please? Our final topic is um, uh, a really interesting article written by Lord Robertson, um, uh, the former, uh, well, new Labour, um, uh, minister and the former uh, general secretary of, of course, NATO. Mm. Um, uh, Lord Robertson was one of the really uh, pioneers of New Labour in many ways. And um, whereas Tony Blair wore a CND badge and favoured unilateral disarmament in his youth, um, of course, Blair was one of those politicians who only not, not only stood four square uh, with the United States and a right-wing US president, George Bush, um, on issues like Afghanistan and Iraq. But Robertson, I think, was one of the key New Labour figures who persuaded Tony Blair uh, of having a really robust defence policy. And that included the maintenance of Britain's independent nuclear deterrent. It involved uh, enabling all kinds of new platforms for our armed forces. But of course, it also uh, meant um, um, uh, Britain under Blair's leadership going in, as I said, to Afghanistan, Iraq. So Robertson has written this really interesting article, and it's called NATO didn't fail in Afghanistan, but our politicians failed to back us. And, and what he's doing in this piece, it was published recently in The Telegraph, is he is um, saying that we should remember um, why we went into Afghanistan in the first place. And he reminds us of the attacks on the Twin Towers and 9-11. Um, he reminds us that the that unprecedented assault on the United States had been organized by Al-Qaeda. They'd been organized in Afghanistan mm. and, um, and that, um, that the West, the United States, Britain and allies went into Afghanistan um, to defeat the hosts of the of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, who were the Taliban, um, and that really that's why we engaged in that war. And uh, he says that we've now had 20 years uh, of conflict in Afghanistan, uh, but 20 years without predominantly malign Taliban influence. And he reminds us that the Afghan people have had a taste of elections. Uh, women and girls have been able to engage in education um, there have been 20 years opportunity of building businesses, to reopen markets, to listen to music, to play sports, all the things uh, that the Taliban suppressed. And those are big things. And I think those are things that people, again, on left and right can unite on um, in, in our advanced democracies. So um, he reminds us that, that that's what's happened. Now, he does not say that we were militarily defeated um, in Afghanistan, what he argues was that we were not really, we didn't have the stomach 
or the political mm. leadership or the will to have the fight and that uh, US presidents have wavered that, you know, Boris Johnson hasn't even mentioned Afghanistan uh, in parliament since he became prime minister and that um, therefore the political will is not there to see it through. Uh, he, he asks a really big question, which is, okay, if we pull out of Afghanistan, what will happen? We have spent a lot of money. Uh, Afghanistan has got an effective and highly trained army. It's got about, if you look at the, the Afghan army and, and the police, um, they have over a third of a million people in uniform and trained. Um, but he's asking the really tricky question. And the question is, if we pull out and Afghanistan remains defended and, and the Taliban you know, held at bay, fine. But if they're not, what will happen? And what could re-emerge in Afghanistan in years to come? What sort of oppression will women and girls suffer? What sort of tyranny will the population suffer? And what sort of terrorism and wickedness will be harbored there? And what sort of crisis and assault could that lead uh, with us here in Europe or North America or elsewhere around the world. And, um, and you know, what I find fascinating about this article, because it does address difficult questions, but it also explains, doesn't it, the ongoing struggle. I mean, you, you could reread Rudyard Kipling and you can reread, you know, that great theme of the great game um, in this part of the world and... You know, which we discussed just a fortnight ago. Yes. Fortnight ago. But you, you, you kind of sense, don't you? You, you? you read in history books about, I know, the British being in Afghanistan in the 1860s, the 1870s. But you get a sense, don't you, that this is a relentless turning of the wheel, that we've spent 20 years in there again, and I don't think we expected it, Simon, mm. did we? You know, on before 9-11, we didn't imagine this. Uh, so we've been there. Our generation have been there again. Now we're leaving. What will happen over the years and decades to come? And will we yet again, will our children or grandchildren find themselves back there again or, or even sooner? Mm. Purely on grounds of national security and preserving democracy. Yes. I mean, he doesn't really say whether he thinks the withdrawal is a mistake or not. He clearly feels it was a mistake that we didn't give the support um, politically. To what was happening we're always pretending it wasn't happening after after a while um but do you think it's it's a mistake i mean we're withdrawing presumably because the americans withdrawn we can't be there on our own um yes, do you I, think I, it's a mistake do you think the taliban will gain control again and therefore that does make you wonder whether everything gained is going to be thrown away yeah i mean there, look, there is a side of me uh, and this is where i've got a split personality there's one side of me that now having observed afghanistan um, and, and thought more about its history. On one side of me, um, it's almost inevitable that, that we keep on visiting and revisiting that country. Mm. Um, and on the other side of me, there's something in my waters that tell me that, that Afghani fighters, you know, those, those people who are, who are fired by their beliefs and their religion and who are you know, world-class fighters and know their terrain better mm. than others, that, that they're going to have their day again. And, and they're going to win um, with all the suffering in terms of our values that that may bring. 
Um, so I, I recognize I'm torn. I sense in my waters that, that the Taliban are coming back and they may win, but I also sense that years down the line that may demand yes uh, and it could be after because we didn't we yeah. don't know we'll have to go back there again but we didn't go in there to bring education and to give women a role in society we went to try and stop al-qaeda using afghanistan as a base to launch terror attacks and in that case it's successful but if we pull out there's no way of preventing that yes but i don't think that you can ever divorce a military campaign from hearts and minds and values yes, yes. you know i mean for example oh, yes no it was a, no it was a fantastic benefit but but you know the reason for going in could become all too important after withdrawal yeah so what what do i think will happen is the nub of your question mm. um and the answer is i don't know but i i sense these sort of irreparable turning of the wheel you know this sort of yes. sort of cycle of droning on through the decades and through the centuries and then secondly um I, i'm mindful of the 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 papers uh, that were found, I think, a few weeks ago at a bus stop in Kent. And, yes. and there were sort of two days of, of reports where you got snippets of what were in the papers. And, and one of the lost MOD papers, or whatever, I think, according to the BBC and the, and the national press and the Guardian elsewhere, um, was suggesting that, um, that there might be some sort of agenda whereby NATO or British and American or whatever special forces might linger in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, um, and, and sort of the, the 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 war with the Taliban and their leadership might go on, but through you know, mm. um, more discreet um, uh, and, and special channels. I don't know. I simply don't know. Um, I don't know where this is going. The, the dep what, but what's so depressing in not knowing is either the Taliban are going to come back and there could be terrorism and terrible internal strife and depression and suffering, or we're going to end up, you know, several presidents down the line and prime ministers and whoever and NATO general secretaries getting back involved in, in some way. And whether it's with deft and very quiet special forces or it's something louder and meatier, I simply don't know. But it's the relentless nature um, of, of all of this that is so sad. You know, you can have huge problems in history. You know, you can have... Um, Japan fighting so effectively and stridently in the Second World War and then it ending and then Japan re being remade and more glorious and more successful than ever. You know, you can have all the problems that Germany and Poland have suffered over the last century and, and then suddenly better things come. Mm. Then there are parts of the world like Afghanistan where, you know, what was going on in the 19th century looks rather similar to the 20th century and the 20th century looks rather similar to the 21st century. And I find that profoundly depressing because it, it, it speaks to the darker end of the human condition. Um, and that's in no way me, I have to say, uh, belittling um, Afghani beliefs or culture. I'm, I'm no cultural imperialist here. But but for me, it is important, really important, um, that people are allowed to go around their their daily business economically, and that and that and that women and that, and that girls can engage in education yes. and, and 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 you know play a full role in in their citizenship and um, and 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 quite frankly, that where people do hold differing beliefs to ours, that's absolutely fine. And that's a wonderful thing. Diversity is a wonderful thing. But when they do harm, you know, um, 
sort of when they are the harbingers of uh, and, and the hosts of 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 terrorism and and and, the, and those terrorists go to inflict horrific damage and murder in our streets. Mm. This is unacceptable, um, and, and it cannot stand. Thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back discussing more in the bigger picture in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.